0: Hey, it's a Monday, share with you real quickly, going back into the mid-90s, one of the great shows I had at WIBC when I was in Indianapolis was with the Tuskegee Airmen. I had three of those gentlemen sit in my studio and we sat down and we talked about World War II, we talked about racism, we talked about what it was like to fly with the Red Tails. And uh, it was an amazing hour that I spent with him. Today, I don't get an hour, get a half hour. But Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart, Jr. is uh, joining us today. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel flew 43 combat missions during World War II, has since retired from active duty in the United States Air Force. That was done in 1950 for his flying prowess with the famed 332nd Fighter Group, Known as the uh, Red Tails, Stewart was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. He also was on the all-African-American team that won the first post-war Air Force-wide Gunnery Meet trophy for propeller-driven fighters. He was born in Virginia, 1924. He celebrated his 95th birthday on the 4th of July. He was raised in New York City's Harlem and Queens. Lieutenant Colonel Stewart now resides in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. And Lieutenant Colonel uh, Stewart, thanks so much for joining us today on the Dave Ellswick uh, show. And as a vet of the Air Force, I salute you, sir, for your service.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you for welcoming me.
0: Well, let's talk about. Now, that would put. I'm trying to think if you were red tailed, you would have been uh, stationed during World War II. Was it in Italy you guys were at?
1: That's correct. In Italy, in a town called uh, Ramezzani, Italy, it was just off the heel of the boot in Italy, on the Adriatic side.
0: Now, there's a lot of bomber pilots that probably credit you and your compatriots during that time for their lives. Is that not true?
1: Well, I uh, that that is true, and uh, there was a large contingent of. Uh, of bombers, uh, B-17s and B-24s stationed uh, in that area down around Foggia, Italy. It was the southern part of Italy there.
0: I guess, you know, the, the questions I know everybody wants me to ask are the obvious ones, which is you went and fought for your nation. You came back. You faced all kinds of discrimination. Can you talk about that a little bit? Let's get that out of the way for everybody.
1: Well, the first thing is uh, oftentimes I'm asked, you know, why did you do this uh, when uh, you weren't uh, given the full rights of, uh, of, of citizenships and uh, uh, you're due uh, as, a, uh, 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 as an American citizen? And I retort that I am an American citizen, and at that time I was an American citizen, mm-hmm. that this is my country and I'm dedicated to fighting for this country. Uh, We were raised when I came up in school with a uh, a, a very, very strong sense of patriotism. And I was made to feel as uh, anyone else and uh, to respect the Constitution and uh, what it stood for. And uh, that's exactly why I fought. And that's exactly why I would still defend the country against any foreign aggressor if it should occur.
0: You know, a lot of people don't understand it wasn't when you came back that you were you, you were aware of uh, the discrimination. You faced discrimination while you were serving in World War II.
1: That's true. Uh, you know, the, uh, African-Americans are not trained uh, or were not given the opportunity to train as uh, as pilots for the uh, Army Air Corps prior to World War II. When the Air Corps did recant and uh, say that we'll train these pilots, it was under the condition that they only train as a segregated unit and that they only be consigned uh, wherever they are as a segregated unit. So that's true. Uh, All of the time that uh, I served uh, in the service up until approximately 1949, I served in a segregated outfit and... uh, uh, was not afforded the uh, uh, full benefits of the uh, 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 being a citizen or a soldier in the united states uh, air force
0: well you were you went through a training that uh, you were told that you had to be better than everybody else weren't you
1: well uh, that was sort of the understanding I don't know if I was told that I had to be uh, better than anyone else. But uh, it certainly was obvious that uh, I was not wanted at the time, and I certainly had to show the best side of myself. And uh, the best side of myself uh, was only brought about by uh, a constant awareness of uh, of the position that I was in.
0: Now, you guys went out on these different, uh, uh, you know, protective uh, missions that you flew during world war two how many how many uh nazi uh fighter pilots were you all credited with shooting down
1: i don't know the total of number you know as far as the three thirty second fighter group is concerned, and the three thirty second fighter group and the red tails being the uh, combat arm of uh, all of the uh, uh black airmen in the uh, uh, uh service at the time there. Uh, I think it might have been uh, some some number of maybe uh, 154 or something like that. I I know that I was credited with uh, uh, downing three uh, enemy aircraft as as far as I was concerned. But I got over into the uh, into the uh, 332nd and the uh, combat area uh, rather late uh, in the war. It was uh, January of 1945, and the war was over in, uh, uh May of, uh, uh, 1945. And, uh, I had managed to, uh, uh, get in 43 combat missions at the time.
0: Talk about that first combat mission. Can you recall the feelings that you had when you took flight?
1: Yes. Uh, I'll be frank and say that I don't think I had a, uh, uh, the slightest bit of understanding of what I was doing at the time. When I when I got overseas, I was checked out in a matter of hours as far as the new aircraft was concerned. That was the P-51, which I had never flown before. And within a couple of days of that checkout, I had just gotten over to uh, uh, the air base in Italy. Uh, I was consigned or assigned to a uh, mission uh, going up into Germany. Uh, I asked, uh, you know, how do I, uh, just what am I responsible to do? And the uh, flight leader told me, he says, just fly my wing, that's all, and try to copy what I do. And uh, uh, it was uh, uh, a real learning curve, but a fast learning curve that I had there. But uh, the first mission there, I was uh, awestruck by the uh, number of aircraft involved. We were escorting a large contingent of bombers uh, going north into Germany. But it wasn't long before uh, I had moved up to the position of uh, flight leader and, uh, and uh, had pretty good understanding then of how a mission was formed and uh, how the whole operations took place.
0: So on one mission, you shot down three enemy fighters. That must have been some dogfight you had up in the air.
1: Well, yes, and I'd like to correct the uh, uh, that number there. Uh, I was given credit for uh, three uh, planes destroyed. Uh, just to give you go back and tell you how the mission occurred. There, uh, uh, I was on a mission with the uh, uh, other squadron that I was on to um, an area up in uh, Vienna. Uh, the Air Force or the Air Corps or headquarters had told us that at the end of the mission there, where the bombers had released their bombs and were in safe territory as far as coming home was concerned, that a contingent of the fighters that uh, I was with at the time uh, would be consigned to going on a fight, what's known as a fighter sweep. There were seven of us that were on this fighter sweep, and uh, we were up around the Danube, uh, around Wells, uh, Air Drone, and... uh, Uh, We did run into a horde of uh, enemy fighters, and uh, uh, they we were outnumbered quite a bit. And uh, uh, of the seven of us, uh, three of us were shot down. One was uh, damaged enough he could get back to uh, friendly territory in Yugoslavia. The second pilot was shot down. He was killed instantly. The third one, his name was Walter Manning from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. But anyway, uh, he managed to bail out of his aircraft. And when he alighted on the ground there, he was picked up by an uh, a, um, Austrian mob and taken to the local jailhouse. Uh, uh, about three nights or two nights later, rather, uh, another mob broke into the jail, and took him out, beat him up pretty badly. But then they uh, lynched him from a mm. flagpole. Uh, That was not too unusual or uh, what I would call absolutely unique. Uh, That happened to a number of uh, bomber crew members that uh, were bombing uh, over a period of time in uh, uh, Vienna and uh, Austria and had the misfortune of uh, being shot down and landing uh, safely, uh, but uh, picked up by a mob and uh, executed. Hmm. Uh, as a uh, lesson and to place the fear uh, uh, into the uh, air crew members that were flying up in that area.
0: That's, that's amazing. And, you know, we don't hear those stories. A lot of people never hear those stories and uh, men gave their lives for the freedoms that we have today. I, I was lucky enough uh, while in the air force that I did the internal information for the U S air force for general Abel at the Pentagon. and, uh, for radio over on Armed Forces Radio, now American Forces Radio, and I got to go to the Gathering of Eagles about three or four times. I'm, I met Gabby Grabowski and uh, and some other folks, and Doolittle and others, great American heroes. And I got to tell you, it it is amazing to sit down and talk to those men and get their take of what World War II was like then and what the country is like now would you would yes. you would you like to talk about that a little bit when you look at the country you see now what do you think
1: well it's certainly uh, a different country than uh, when i was coming up or prior to world war ii or at that time when i went into the service uh the uh, social atmosphere was uh, completely different than now and uh uh, in large segments of the country, there was institutional segregation where uh, uh, not only the schools uh, were segregated, but the transportation system, everything was segregated uh, as far as that was concerned, your restaurants, your uh, uh, other places of common gathering, your railroads. Even when I got on the train to go down to Mississippi and uh when I reached the Mason-Dixon line there, I was told by the uh, conductor to go up to the front car. That was the colored car, he called it, or the Jim Crow car, and uh, that was the one that was reserved for uh, uh, <clears throat> colored people, and uh, that's what prevailed uh, most of the time that I was in the service. Uh, after the war and after I went to uh, Columbus, Ohio and stationed there with the uh, uh, re- reorganized the uh, uh, Tuskegee Airmen or a 332nd Fighter Group uh, there was uh, Truman's doctrine that uh, announced that there would be uh, no more segregation in the uh, in the armed services but <clears throat> that didn't actually take place until 1949 and as far as the Air Corps was concerned the uh uh, all of the black Tuskegee Airmen who were flying at the time there, uh, they were stationed, as I said, in a uh, the Lockburn Air Force Base, Columbus, Ohio. And uh, it was in June of 1949, uh, the base was abandoned, and all of the personnel were sent to four corners of the earth there, and uh, complete integration uh, had taken place at that time. Even though integration of the uh, armed services had taken place, uh, I got out of the service in 1950 and I applied with a couple of airlines because I I felt as though I had the required amount of uh, flying hours and training to uh, take a job in the airlines. But I was uh, uh, rejected uh, in in both cases with uh, both airlines there. Uh, Unfortunately, I could never follow my life's ambition in becoming a, commercial airline pilot, but I must say that uh, a, a few years later, I should say maybe uh, 10 years later, that uh, the airlines recanted just as the Air Force Corps did and started hiring uh, uh, black personnel, uh, African-Americans as uh, uh, air crew members on the aircraft. Until today, now, you'll find that every airline in the country has uh, uh, black pilots, flying for us and, uh, air crew members that are, are black there. In fact, uh, I mentioned that, I guess it was a, a year or two ago, I was uh, getting on a plane and, uh, I think it was in Detroit or Atlanta, but anyway, I looked in the cockpit there and there were two, uh, African-American, uh, crew members who were flying the plane. It was a co-pilot, black co-pilot and a uh, black pilot. Not only that, not only were they, uh, 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 flying, you know, flying the plane there in Black, but they were female. They were female, so <laughs> that was really something, but I mean, I'm just trying to show you between the um, uh, uh, extremes there, what it was like before the uh, war there, and what it is like today, so mm-hmm. to me, there has been absolute sea change, and, uh, and it's very, very gratifying, and it actually brings really a Moment of uh, uh, reflection in my uh, mind when I when I see the progress that we've made in this country. At the time, we're not there yet entirely. Uh, I mean, there's still I I wouldn't deny that uh, there are pits of of, of segregation within the country still and. uh, still some difficulties as far as race relations are concerned but it's certainly a change from what it was uh, when i first went into the service and what it is now.
0: I, I would say so my father always said that we were we were slowly but continually moving towards where we needed to go and uh you know i've I, I talk with you all that were with the Tuskegee Airmen, and I think about you, yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of people talk about civil rights, and and we all, of course, and in, in rightly so, talk about Dr. King and, and others, but you all were at the cusp of the beginning of all of this. I mean, you, you played an integral part in in breaking the pillars of racism in America.
1: Uh yes. I, I, I would agree, and now I recognize it, even though I didn't recognize that we were making those great strides, you know, when I first went into the service and uh, before I, uh, before I uh, uh, came out of the service. But, uh, you know, over a period of time, I can evaluate and see what's happened, and uh, from the beginning and comparing the beginning uh, to the end there, there's just been a tremendous
0: change. Yeah, it's, it's really incredible. You're to be commended for not only your service, but for what you did uh, in advancing, uh, you know, the the destruction of of uh, discrimination here in this country. Uh, let me take you back to when you guys came back from World War II. You were in a a, a gunnery competition uh, for our listeners that would have no idea. About prop-driven planes and and in gunnery, explain to them what that competition was like.
1: Well, the competition was the same, and the best analogy that I can that the public might be able to understand, uh, the Navy called the competition uh, Top Gun. Uh, they probably saw Tom Cruise and the Top Gun there, and uh, uh, that was the type of comp- uh, competition that it was. But this was restricted to the United States Air Force at the time. Uh, General Vandenberg, who was the chief of staff at the time, decided that he would like to resurrect uh, the pre-war gunnery meets that they used to have. And he asked that all of the 12 uh, fighter groups that were in the country at the time, this was in uh, 1949, that they send three of their uh, top pilots uh, to a, a gunnery contest that would take place in uh, Nevada, around the Las Vegas area, out of the desert there. And this uh, contest involved both the jets that we had at the time there and the uh, piston-driven planes, the prop propeller-driven planes. Uh, what had happened, there were seven of the uh, uh, groups of the uh, 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 jet planes there and five groups of the uh, propeller. The propeller group was made up of P-51s. Mm -hmm. that were flown, and also P-47s that were flown by the uh, Tuskegee Airmen. But anyway, uh, to try to make a long story short, uh, the competition took place over a period of 10 days, and uh, it involved aerial gunnery at 20,000 feet, aerial gunnery at 10,000 feet strafing, dive bombing, skip bombing, and uh, I think there were other couple of contests in there. I just don't remember offhand. But when the clouds uh, disappeared and everything else, it turns out that in the piston class, that's the fighters, the P 51 and the P 47s and that type of thing, the winners of that class were the Tuskegee Airmen. So that was uh, quite a feather in that uh, of the Tuskegee Airmen there. And I think that most of all, it proved that the Tuskegee Airmen were on par uh, with the rest of the Air Force uh, as far as the uh, uh, skills and uh, uh, handling and combat aircraft were concerned. Uh, not to say that they were that much better than anyone else, but uh, given another day, it may have been another group that uh, had won the contest there. But uh, this this period, it happened to be, or the first. Uh, uh, United States Air Force is going to be meeting. It happened to be the Tuskegee Airmen who won the uh, conventional class or the piston class involved.
0: All right, Lieutenant Colonel Harry T. Stewart Jr., World War II veteran, Tuskegee Airman, and uh, I'm sure you guys didn't expect to be revered the way you are today. You can walk with a little extra swagger. He's 95 years old. You sound like you're 50, sir. You're amazing to listen to. You're, so, you're just so clear. We appreciate your time. I'm out of time. I'm going to try to get you set up for another interview here on the Dave Ellswick Show. And again, I salute you as a former vet of the U.S. Air Force and the great things that you did as, a, as an airman as well. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Mm, bye-bye now. Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart of the Tuskegee Airmen. He's 95 years old. Can you believe he's 95 years old? Listen to him talk like that. Unbelievable. That was a great interview. I I got goosebumps from that. All right. Got to take a break. Let's do that here on the Dave Ellswick Show.